All right, and we are live with episode 121 of the Decentralized Revolution podcast, the podcast of the Mises Caucus. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, before we get to our guest, Derek Rose, running for mayor of Houston, Texas, uh, got to make the normal plugs at the beginning here. Uh, we have a candidate training tomorrow night at eight o'clock through our run as libertarian uh, link. So sign up at runaslibertarian.com if you want to support Project Decentralized Revolution, the effort to across the country nullify the state from the local level up, get involved in the community level, build that culture up from the ground up, get people uh, listening about liberty, teach people about liberty, get into those local seats and nullify the feds right from your own community to create these hoppy and enclaves of liberty across the uh, the country to push back against the feds and their insanity you can do that at runaslibertarian.com we have had over 350 people sign up for runaslibertarian.com in our initial efforts trainings are going on every month and uh lp national has announced some trainings coming there's uh software from to support candidates coming from lp national very excited about all of that so Support the effort, runislibertarian.com, and sign up for our email list at takehumanaction.com. I join you guys, as always, with our co-hosts, Brandy and Aaron. What's going on, guys? Hey, guys. What's up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got... Brandy, you, guys you go first. You say hello first. You guys come back down to earth from the, the Chansley interview? Holy shit. Oh, wow. oh well, from last. It was a next level week. conversation. Yeah, I, that <laughs> was I, wasn't, I, I wasn't here and I listened to it on the uh, just the audio version. And uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, uh, really neat. Um, he seems like a really sweet guy. So especially after what he's been through. Probably yeah, one of the most misunderstood people out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then we are joined by Derek Bros, Derek of the Houston Free Thinkers and candidate for uh, mayor in Houston. What's going on, Derek? Oh, you were oh, muted, bud. We lost, we lost you. your mic. Thank you guys for having me on here. <laughs> there we go. So, Derek, I, as I was saying, uh, like before we started recording, I've known you since the good old days, the good old Ron Paul days. Um, and uh, so I've, I've kept up with your work on and off, you know, good friends with John. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen all the good work you're doing and the diverse set of work that you're doing. But uh, before we get into your candidacy or the issues or anything, I kind of want the audience to learn a little bit about you because there's a lot of people in the LP where I've done a lot of my work that are not aware of who you are and what you've done. Uh, and so can you give us a little background about what all you've been involved in the past 10, 12 years? Yeah, appreciate that. Um, like as you said, most of my work probably could be seen more as being involved in the activist side of things you know, more than the political side of things like with the LP or any other political party. But I started getting involved in Houston where I am now, where I'm originally from back in 2010. And I, as you said, there, there was an, an activist group I started called the Houston Freethinkers. We were active for about seven or eight years doing everything from protesting at the Federal Reserve and trying to raise awareness about the Federal Reserve and alternative currencies and uh, a lot of local people supporting Ron Paul at that time. We also were involved with that. It was also around the time of the Occupy movement. So you had Occupy and in the Fed sort of coalescing locally in Houston. We did a lot of marches for the NDA and the uh, 2011, which was 
codifying indefinite detention against American citizens during the Obama years. And so a lot of the activism first was very reactive and protest oriented and, you know, doing things like that. And I think there is a place for that. But over time, it became more about trying to, from my perspective, like if I believe that a voluntary world or a world with no government or a lot less government is possible, to me, the best way to show that is to live it and to practice it. And so how do you get involved in your community and show people that we don't need to depend on the state? Well, you, you know, you come up with ideas, programs, different uh, groups and organizations. And so a lot of my work has been around that. So that took me everywhere from building community gardens and urban farms in some of the poorest neighborhoods of Houston and showing people the importance of being able to not be dependent on uh, the grocery store or anybody else and encouraging just autonomy and independence in that way. Um, and then along the way, I started to realize that the local media was doing a pretty bad job with their journalistic efforts. The Houston Freethinkers, we started to get some news coverage. First, had had a run-in with HPD back in the shotgun on, on us and uh, it made local news. That was the first time I was on Alex Jones' show back in 2011. And that was my first interaction with the cops and with the media where they showed up at my house and we all chilled and they sat down and talked and said, okay, tell us your story. And then that night they reported that a local group of conspiracy theorists surrounded the cops and made us sound like we were these violent, dangerous people. And that was kind of the first thing in my mind that sort of triggered the idea that maybe I ought to try to do journalism better. And so I started just going to local events, to press conferences, going to protests with my camera, asking questions to the local politicians, the chief of police, and then asking, you know, national politicians, presidential candidates, former members of the CIA, Henry Kissinger, et cetera. And so my journalism has become my full-time gig, you know, from activism into journalism. Um, so it's time now, 14 years, I've written five different books focused on libertarian theory in a couple of different ways, specifically agorism, agorism. And I've toured the U.S. three times, Mexico once as well. Um, I've this, as, as you said, I'm running for mayor right now. This is my second time running. Um, I started a website called The Conscious Resistance in 2013, which is really for me about the exploration of anarchism and liberty, as well as the internal search for freedom, spirituality, if you will. And so I've been exploring that realm for a, quite a while, as well as producing documentaries. So I do everything. I can, whether it's journalism or activism, to try to bring people to the ideas of voluntarism, to the ideas of uh, libertarianism. And uh, yeah, so my books and works all sort of center around that, like through the journalism, trying to educate people about corruption within government and what's really going on, but also through the books and public speaking, trying to encourage people to students, which for me, you know, despite the fact that I'm running for mayor right now, I don't think is the solution and uh, in any way. And, you know, that's why a lot of what I'm running on is trying to reduce the position of mayor here in Houston. And we can talk more about that. Absolutely. Is it right to say that um, you're a co-founder of Freedom Cells with John Bush? I think I remember that at a Free Your Mind conference, you guys both announcing that. Yeah, yeah. So John, uh, that's another thing I totally forgot. Thanks for that. So my buddy, John Bush, who's another activist here in Texas, he first gave this presentation in Austin in 2015, talking about the Central Texas Mutual Aid Society. It was this idea of just getting together and localized, decentralized groups and organizing locally to try to meet our needs and, you know, grow a counter economy. And uh, I was really struck by the idea. He, he started calling it Freedom Cells back then in 2016. 
I started building Freedom Cells in Houston shortly after that. And then together, we kind of co-founded the Freedom Cell Network, which is a worldwide network now of more than 40,000 people who have signed on at freedomcells.org, where people can go and sign up for this free social network that specifically is about finding people in your local area. So you can put your skills, your your goals, whatever you have to offer. And then you can go to the maps and it adds you to your map based on your location. You don't have to put your actual address, but somewhere near where you live. And then people can go search the maps to find individuals within 10 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, or groups that have already uh, been created. And the goal, of course, is to connect through the website and then to meet in the real world and start getting organized. So yeah, I mean, a lot of my work has been around that, like organizing the community, not necessarily so much organizing through um, actual politics. I mean, obviously, it's all human politics and organizing and trying to empower people at the end of the day. And so for me, running for office, this is just another expression of like, I'll try anything that I think I can do where I can effectively use my voice, whether that's writing or speaking or, you know, running for office, if it means trying to reach more people in these super crucial times we're in. I love that. I could, what you just like spoke to my soul, like everything you just said, because I genuinely think that what we need is more bottom up solutions to problems and figuring out how to create that within our communities. And a lot of people like focus kind of bit big scale but i i think that that is amazing by the way yeah it's been really well i'll say about the freedom cell network the cool thing is we started promoting this in 2015 2016 we had an early version of the website uh the current version we started working on in 2019 but it wasn't until covid 19 what i call covid 1984 came along and we saw membership go from about 2000 people on the website prior to covid to now as i mentioned like 40000 people just through the website and then there's Holy a lot shit. of people a lot of people organizing freedom cells on telegram so you'll we have like a main network there and a directory of all these groups and we didn't create them these are groups that people just spontaneously were inspired by the ethos which we promote decentralization, nonviolence, localization, solutions focused, and then particularly with freedom cells, it is apolitical, right? So it's like you could organize freedom cells in your community to promote whatever causes or goals you have, but it's just been crazy to see it kind of take on a life of its own now. And just like a month ago, I got to go to uh, to the UK and I spoke in a couple of cities in, in London and met like members of the freedom cells over there that have just started to organize and kind of wow. do their things. And it's really pretty cool. So this it's is pretty... like all over the country. There's this freedom cells the world. all over the, the world. Yeah. yeah, that is wild. I'm like looking it up right now. What yeah. is the link for that? freedomcells.org c-e-l-l-s like the cells in your body kind of the idea is like each group is individual is you know it's like you're going to have different needs and resources on the east coast than we might have in houston right but there might be some overlap some things that we have similar but if you got together a group of say what we call for small groups eight to ten people like let's say you got together and you said okay what are our goals and interests for the next six months what are our concerns and maybe some people are like hey i'm concerned about food prices okay well let's start you know, a garden together as a group, or does anybody have a backyard? You, know, you start coming up with goals and ideas, and it's sort of the idea that the Freedom Cell is your activist support network. You know, these are people that you know you can call upon for, um, you know, for support in these different ways. And then, in let's say emergency situation, it doesn't have to be, you know, the end of the world zombie apocalypse, but let's say a weather emergency or anything. The idea would be that this local group we could support each other in these ways. And then the bigger picture idea that we've been promoting for years, and I still think we're in the early phases of this, is that as these groups are growing separately and individually all over the world, we're also kind of collect uh, collectively connecting to this 
you know, worldwide network that I've already seen people use the website that we have to travel. And so say they're traveling to somewhere new, they'll go search the Freedom Cells map to see if there's a group or any cool people nearby or events coming up and then get plugged in that way. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of just like a decentralized family in that way where people, yeah. we're not all aligned. I wouldn't say everybody's like 100% libertarian or anarchist or anything like that per se. It's just people, though, who are looking for solutions and who are, I think, looking for answers. Obviously, myself and John, the founders, we're libertarians, we're voluntarists, but we don't make it like this specific yeah. ethos. I mean, right. the message is there. You can see it. But, you know, we welcome everybody and it's it's taken on a life of its own. I think that's what where the the there's two levels of value that you kind of hinted at, not only the local one, but, you know, the the decentralized nature of it, that you can have a, a nationwide, statewide, you know, worldwide network that, you know, it, the whole concept, I think, comes from like a revolutionary movement. They do cells where they'll, you know, the, it's the way it's structured. If you take out one cell, it doesn't lead you all the way up the top to the, you know, to whoever's in charge because it's not really set up that way. So, um, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah, I think uh, Moon is a harsh mistress is a uh, is a good science fiction novel that they kind of use that thing in their little um, resistance uh, in there. So uh, also John Bush, I'm uh, using his kratom right now. Brave botanicals. <laughs> uh, he's uh, he keeps uh, he helps me with my back pain and and other things with oh. his with his good kratom. <laughs> Have yeah, John. Seen... Sorry, I was gonna say John always likes to joke that uh, the the cells term, in addition to the way I explain it about like the cells in your body, each cell is powerful and unique on its own, but it's also part of the collective that is like your whole biology. John also chose the name because he kind of was trolling like the sort of post 9/11. You know, there's terror cells everywhere. This and that's like, all right, well, we're gonna be cells of freedom, cells of liberty. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a 2011 or 2013 Free Your Mind conference that I remember all this from that Mark Passio used to do. Um, I'll get into philosophical weeds. I have one more thing about your work and that we can start to look forward uh, that I want to touch on. But um, philosophical weeds, what I really respect about you is um, everything you just said is incredible. Like the, the, the Freedom Cells Network is incredible and you're all about agorism. And yet at the same time... Um, you know, there's this weird antagonism within the the anarchist movement, the, the libertarian movement of like uh, uh, agorists and people who are politically uh, active and, and see that, um, Is there? you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. John <laughs> does not. I didn't know. So like no. John, I, I fully respect John, but uh, he is not a fan of political activity. Um, and um, and uh, what I how I see it as is how I've always seen it is. The trajectory that we're on as a society, um, it will, it, it cannot sustain. There will be a breaking point at some point with the, with the currency collapse, with, with all of that stuff. Um, you know, the social cohesion breaking down, all of this kind of thing. And there's going to have to be something there um, for the remnant, so to speak, to pop, to emerge out of. And I think that's got to be a full spectrum thing. I think it's got to be what you're doing through agorism where we can have, you know, groups to feed each other or to help each other and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I also think it, it has to, there has to be something politically, you know, like I think uh, people will have a political reflex in a collapse scenario to maybe look at the state governments or, you know, I can look at instances where a, a sheriff said, no, we're not doing the COVID thing and nullified the, the COVID regime or Missouri has gold and silver is legal tender and, and, and all of this stuff. And these are all wins, regardless of whether they're 
political activity or not. And we need all of it. Freedom is in short supply in this country and we need it from uh, like every angle that we can get. So that's that's something I really respect about you is obviously you're you're doing both and very well. Yeah, you know, well, this is the interesting thing about this here. I'm sending you guys this article if you want to show it online. This is an article, an essay I wrote a couple months ago when I first started running. It's called Why I'm Running for Office as an Agorist slash Anarchist. Because, yeah, there is this huge separation. And I was, you can find on that same website videos and articles I've made over the last 10 years about why I don't vote. And I don't vote in the presidential race. I, and I've never even voted before I ran uh, mayor for mayor in 2019. I did vote for myself. The only other time I ever voted when I was 18 and I was still kind of stuck in the left-right paradigm and I knew that I hated George Bush, so I went and voted for his cousin, John Kerry. And then, you know, later on realized it was kind of a sham and I just stopped playing the whole game. So I definitely have my own issues, my concerns with... Um, the political system and legitimizing and all that and all and I think there's you know legit discussions to ha be, to be had there and I also at the same time I've always told people you know but if you are going to get involved in politics I think you should focus locally and you know unlike many activists who live a very online life like I've noticed this you've probably seen this Mike and maybe you guys have as well <clears throat> that there's some people have huge following online and maybe to the point of millions of followers online but have no connection to their local community mm -hmm. and you know I've, I've got some followers online but i have a very deep connection to my local community i've always been involved like i was saying earlier with not just doing things like making videos about stuff going on around the world or confronting national politicians but doing things in my community activism confronting the police chief confronting the mayors like going putting a camera in their face and you know doing this so people here know me so now that for example when i run for mayor there's already people ready to to support my point is that I think that many people have a, a big disconnect but in, in their local communities and um, what's really happening in those communities. And although I still consider myself an anarchist and an agorist, and I do think my philosophy and the ideas of exit and build that I wrote about in my book, like exiting from the systems, including the political system and preparing for what's coming and like you outlined, Mike, I still believe in that strategy, and I'm very much practicing that in my own personal life and my financial economic life. I believe in the counter economy. And I also think we're in such a crucial time that I'm willing to stomach a little bit of throw up in my mouth and pay some money to the state so I can be in the game and like get these ideas injected into the conversation. Because I realized in 2019 that Derek Bro's local journalist, or if you ask some people, local conspiracy theorist, doesn't get invited the same places that Derek Bro's candidate for mayor does. Derek Bro's candidate for mayor in 2019 got invited to <clears throat> all the local TV stations, radio stations, uh, rich neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, Democrat groups, Republican groups, black neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, high schools, old folks homes, just because I have this little silly title next to my name. And for six or seven months, and what I'm doing now, what I'm in the middle of, I'm able to kind of hijack that signal and at least make sure that ideas and things that I think people who would be hearing this program, libertarians, care about, you know, talking about limiting the local power, talking about surveillance, talking about privacy. And uh, it was it was a very successful uh, campaign in 2019 in those terms. So for me, I am still an agorist. I still am an anarchist. I've had a lot of friends talk shit to me for this again, like, you know, and that's fine. But I still see, I'm just like, I don't care. I really don't care if it means waking up one more person or getting one more person to question the two party system or to think out part of that and to do that in my own local community, because it's nice to get millions of views online, but it's a whole different thing to actually affect and impact the people in your backyard and in your community, because that's where you can really have some effect. And the other last thing I'll say on that is I think also, I feel like running for office in 2019 and this time I've been campaigning since January this year 
as crazy as it might sound, I honestly think it's made me a better anarchist because I feel like I'm getting to talk to regular everyday people, not just, you know, a certain class of people who debate about libertarianism and anarchism online via certain podcasts and Twitter and wherever else. Like I'm talking to people who they are so disconnected from these inner politics, you know, movement drama stuff. They have no idea about any of that. All they want to know about is can somebody fix the flooding on their street? Or is somebody gonna install a light on their street so that there's less crime? And I'm not even saying this is the job of the government or the mayor, but I realize like those are just regular people that have concerns and yelling taxationist theft or just debating the ins and outs of the philosophy isn't gonna reach that kind of person, right? So how do I find a way to communicate the message of liberty to a person who maybe even thinks it is the job of the government to be doing X, Y, and Z for them. You know, I how do I find a way to show them? I don't think that's the answer, but let's see. And this has been the approach I've taken. Like, how can we find wasteful programs that the city's doing and shut those down? And if I have a choice, I'd rather choose to like something that might actually support the people and help the people as opposed to $10 million going to the cops for whatever surveillance tool they want, you know? So that's kind of been the approach I'm taking is like, more of a pragmatic approach of like, look, there's no perfect anarchist, even libertarian answer in every one of these situations, but there are ways to approach it. And to at the very least hear these people as just like human beings, whether or not I'm gonna agree with them or they're gonna agree with my solutions, but just the fact that there are real people out there. And so, yeah, man, the more time I've spent away from the liberty movement, the more like I feel like my philosophy has gotten refined because you know, it's the philosophy that I've written about in my books and talked about, but it's also, I think, tempered with some reality of what people out here are dealing with. And I think sometimes there's a big disconnect between the online liberty, libertarian, LP included movement and those debates and in the people out in the streets, Is that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have, a, I have a question. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think we have way too many keyboard warriors. <laughs> um, what would be your advice for people that to, that want to get involved, that want to like actually do things within their community, but don't know where to start. Like, what would you say they should do? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, that, that obviously is going to depend on if somebody wants to take the political or the apolitical approach. Apolitical, I, apolitical, like apolitical, the not, yeah. not political approach. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, what I'll add to that too, to what you're saying, Mike, you know, the, the kind of, just to wrap that thought up, the point I got to is I, I'm, I think definitely old me would argue against what I'm doing now. And I don't think my views have changed necessarily, but I feel like they have shifted a little bit in terms of like, things are getting to a pretty dangerous point. I'm ready to try everything, you know, and that's yeah. kind of just the way I see it. But in terms of apolitical action, I do think getting involved in movements like the Freedom Cells movement, I mean, I'm not just plugging it because I've been involved in it, but because I've seen people and I've met people who told me, you know, I joined the website, I found people locally, we started growing food together. Some people said they took their kids out of school and started homeschooling or unschooling them together or people bought land, you know, people taking real steps in ways that they see are creating independence for them. I tend to encourage people to sort of look at like not only like the state, but any sort of system that you feel like is not going to lead to long-term liberty, uh, freedom, privacy, et cetera. So for example, people are concerned about CBDCs coming in, right? So you're looking at your economic situation. Like, are you totally in debt right now, uh, in debt to the banks or in debt to somebody, you know, that might be something you want to tr start trying to address. Are you, is all your money dependent on the banking system in that banking system? So when they switch over to CBDCs, whatever, however soon that may, may or may not be, are you going to be basically stuck in that system? And again, to reference COVID, I, I feel like a lot of people saw or felt threatened with the measures that some governments around the world took with COVID. And so they started to make more rapid moves, including 
moving to different countries, moving different states. You know, a lot of people coming to Texas, coming to Florida, they made big moves because they could see what's on the horizon. And I, I personally am not trying to fear monger or anything like that, but I do think people need to take a view of the landscape of what we're facing and how big the state's getting and advancing in these different areas and ask yourself, what, what, you know, where's your red line? What are you not willing to accept? And then, okay, once you understand that, what steps do you need to do to feel more free, more whole, so that we can continue to thrive in the face of what, these folks are trying to build, at least from my perspective, so that we can, whether that means thriving by fighting them within the political system, if there's still hope there, or thriving outside of their hands, not being dependent on the banking system, not being dependent on the mainstream food production systems, which and none of these things are easy, of course, We're, we need to like create the alternatives to them. So this is what I, I guess propose outside of the, the, the action I'm taking as a mayoral candidate is really a, a longer term generational change, which I, I believe is mm -hmm the way change typically really takes hold. You know, we're kind of told that, you know, electing me for mayor is not going to fix Houston. Electing any of us great people in this call president is not going to fix everything, right? This, that's the lie we've been told, that there's some sort of quick fix, right? It's more generational, like, change that I think needs to take place. And so I kind of see this is our opportunity to start laying the foundation for that so that those coming after us might have more of a hope instead of being born into CBDCs, digital IDs, no privacy, no freedom. You know, if we carve a different path, then maybe there will be another path. Yeah. And, and uh, what I like about what you said about like your purpose for running is it so closely aligns with what the founders of the Libertarian Party had in mind for what the function <laughs> of the party was. And, you know, there's been a lot of strategic and tactical malfeasance over the last 50 years. And, uh, um, you know, somewhere along the way, it became more about vote chasing than about culture building, you know, and, and, um, and education. And that was a big reason why we got active. You know what I mean? Is, is we wanted to kind of restore that, like you had said earlier, if you're going to be involved, be involved locally. That's, that's what our whole initiative is about is to, to get, to become a leader, like what you're talking about sort of in, in, uh, in that local area, in that local culture, uh, and then go for a position where you can use the 10th amendment essentially to nullify your community from the insanity. Um, and that's all great. I, and another thing that I have found when you, when you kind of step, step out of the internet and into the real world, uh, and I really think this is important and more people need to do this. I think what you find is that generally speaking, the people are not as bad as the government. And I think our online culture, uh, it's so easy to be hateful and say something crazy online because there's no ramifications and all of this stuff and to get really, really black pilled. Um, but then if you just go out and start talking to people, one, you, you, you get a little heartened and two, you, these opportunities pop up that you, you never would have imagined, you know, like, so like I, I had one meeting with the chief of police and turned that into legalized weed in my town. You know, I randomly saw a news article that a Republican state, she was a state Congresswoman at the time. She's a state Senator now. Um, you know, that as a Republican was open to doing uh, psilocybin studies in my state. So I immediately called her and set up a meeting and got her to be in favor of uh, the defend the guard legislation. You know what I mean? And, and these are the kind of things that are just not going to happen online, you know, and, and it's heartening, more heartening than what you get online most of the time. Yeah, I think people aren't as bad as it might appear online. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe in some places it's worse, but I think on a whole, like, it's not as divisive as the, the algorithm can make it seem. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think most pe even the people that you disagree with online in person, if you talk to them, they wouldn't be so uh, aggressive. <laughs> it's like they can hide behind their avatar or whatever, and they can, you know, 
lose their humanity and the other person on the other side of the screen has also lost their humanity to them because it's not a person in their mind um but i've noticed that like i hang out in a lot of leftist circles because i'm in boston so i hang out with a lot of people that don't agree with me and they're not nearly as as uh, bad as people would assume they should would be or should be um and i was gonna say something in regards to how in regards to whether it's like taking political action or agorist more uh doing things in that direction apolitical it should shouldn't it be it should be a mix of both and how do we kind of make a merger of doing both that that's what i'm sorry to jump in but that was one other thing i meant to say is that another big thing that that animated me with the with the caucus is i i always felt that the libertarian party should be the the party of anti-state meaning mm -hmm. like campaigns that's not a 24 7 365 thing you know what i mean like you you only have these local races every other year and then okay maybe we have to try to uh try our ballot access races these other years and stuff like that but there's there's a lot of shit you know around that so we we i think have already proven with the caucus that you can have a community of people around this concept and around the political action and you can we should strive i think to fill in the cracks with all of this other stuff we should be the party of homeschool we should be the party of uh you know firearms training we should be the party of homesteading and and all of this self-empowerment stuff you know to to kind of fill in the cultural cracks and have a full spectrum attack against the state and be not just a libertarian political party but the party of anti-state people you know can i can i just nerd out on some libertarian history for a minute hell yeah, yeah. absolutely okay so because I, I mean as you know mike i spent like a lot of time years ago i mean in, around 2016 i made like i even put a video i was like i'm making a conscious effort to move away from the libertarian movement not in terms of philosophy but just like i don't want to be involved in this niche drama and debates anymore i'm gonna and i, I actually started making a really uh like deliberate effort to get accepted to speak at like transformational festivals where, you know, hippies and spiritual folks would be because I felt like I'd already brought the spiritual message to the libertarians. I want to bring the libertarian message now to the spiritual community. And again, using certain language and not like using trigger words, they're right along board with us. So people, people everywhere understand this message. But um, my point is I was just studying this history for so long and Konkin, Samuel Konkin, who's the founder of agorism and agorism, he was there at the beginning of the creation of the of the, of the LP. He was there in the 60s, the late 60s, when they were burning draft cards and like the splitting of the young Americans for freedom, like the creation of the modern libertarian movement basically with uh, Murray Rothbard. And he was probably the most vocal critic of the LP. He was a part of it. He was part of the first uh, radical caucus back like right in the beginning. And his main goal, though, was like he said he was trying to like destroy it from within because he thought it was impure and, you know, just constantly talking shit about everything. And, and just because he was such a purist in a lot of ways that I, I do respect, like his principles being so, so on point. But I, I do feel like there is value in, you know, like just that idea, the founder of agorism, teaching people to be outside of the system, build counter economies, build parallel systems. But even he was choosing to participate in it because he felt like, hey, this could be a vehicle. These people clearly get it. Um, at least in the beginning, it was mainly a lot of anarchist people who felt like this is the next step. Let's become a political party and, you know, look where it's at now, right? There's still a lot of potential there. So I do feel like there's, as crazy as it sounds, that there is a, a balance and an opportunity for that agorist kind of, um, uh, like, some alliance between those who are doing it within the party and those who are doing it outside, like, more in the movement. I, I think there's more of an opportunity than ever before. 
um, and, and on different, different spectrums. Cause like, okay, if you do go walk the path that you walk, you, you, you become active and, and connected to your local community. You have something of a trust by that community so that when you talk, it counts for something. You know what I mean? So that's, that's one way that you bring people into the ideas and then bring people into these other networks. And then on top of that, so if we have these like pockets of people going out and do that all over the place, it's, it's incalculable that what the flowers of that would, would be at some point. And then while that's going on from the more top down level is you were seeing the absolute falling of the media. You know what I mean? And, and the media paradigm is being replaced with the podcast paradigm. Now, I'm not saying every major podcaster is a, a perfect libertarian, but I can tell you that I personally have been on Tim Pool twice. I can tell you that a libertarian co-hosts with it. He has libertarians all the time. There's libertarian ideas going on from it all the time. This same thing could be said for, of like Patrick Bat David, Joe Rogan, you know, like the, the libertarian ideas, even if it's not pure form, the philosophy is infecting the culture in a way that it never has before. So when that top down access to messaging meets with our distributed net pockets of people emerging up through the community, what happens? We don't know. It's unprecedented. And, and it's, it's very exciting. It's like a whole dark dawn kind of thing. It's very exciting. I mean, and again, like to me, freedom cells, what we're creating are, if you look at the New Libertarian Manifesto and Konkin described this, what he believed with like this, his prediction of the stages society would pass through to get to a more free place. And he talked about like, first it started with, in the beginning, there were no libertarians and then people discover the idea and then it starts to spread, right? And then you end up, as he says, people start exiting the state and creating counter economies, which again, this is the 60s. So he was using that term counter in relation to the counterculture, right? He was like, okay, we got the counterculture. Well, now we need the counter economy, the parallel economy. Um, but he believed that it would start with these pockets of, uh, these like pockets of agoras that would start to happen. And basically to me, those are freedom cells like starting to happen and spreading it that way at the same time as people like yourselves have been trying to fight within the political system. And I do think there is a, a kind of a, a really important point where those things connect, you know, where the movement, because I think a lot of people who might consider themselves part of a liberty or freedom movement, uh, if they know of the LP, they probably, like a lot of people, they hear propaganda version of what libertarianism is, or they think it's like, oh, those people love corporations or whatever. Can't blame them. You know, <laughs> can't blame them before we got here. Yeah. yeah, but you know, so there's 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 been a disconnect, but there definitely, I think, is an opportunity for between those who are kind of part of the movements of people out there who are online and maybe go to festivals and conferences and events that aren't explicitly libertarian, but are essentially promoting the same ideas and values. It's just about kind of bridging those gaps, maybe. Yeah. Well, so yeah. that was why I asked that question earlier was because I am very heavily more on the political side, but I want to be more. I want to learn. I live in Boston. I want to figure out how to get more involved in the community side, in the agorist side and getting out in that way. So, uh, yeah, that, that was why I had asked that question earlier. If you have any advice. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I'll start with you later. Check out my book. There's a bunch okay. of advice. Awesome. <laughs> but I, and again, I've had these experiences where I know exactly what you're talking about. Like I remember, um, Maj Torre used to do the solutionary summits. Um, and it was pretty like dissident black focused, you know what I mean? So like a lot of dissident black figures um, coming together and, you know, people like to call that movement the black conservative movement. But then when I went there, I'm like, that is not an accurate. I mean, there's some of that, but there's all kinds of shit flying around in this space uh, of dissident thought. And, you know, when I talked to like I, I went I remember I went up to um, 
professor of finance, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins. Um, you know, he's, he's a speaker in this space. And in his talk, he had mentioned something about the Federal Reserve being a feature of capitalism. And so I just walked up to him and this guy has an audience and I'm like, you know, why do you think that? Like, why, why do you believe that? And then he, he sat there for a minute and thought about it and said, I don't know. And, and then I explained it, how it's more of a parasite on, on capitalism and, and all of this stuff. And then he voted libertarian. Now, I know that's not the end all be all, but my point is there was a shift. And this dude has people that he influences. And, and you know, it's it's just more of the same, like, you have no idea what can pop off when you get out into the world and talk to people, you know, like. Yeah. Word. So, so go, go ahead. ahead. Mike. No, no, no. I've talked a lot. Well, so um, I know this may be kind of boring, but like as far as running for mayor in Houston, which is a big city, like how, um, what's your strategy been? And also like um, different states, different cities, like to get on the ballot, like, are you on the ballot, ballot as a libertarian? How hard was it to get on the ballot? Just you said that you get invited to places and I found I used to be a local newspaper reporter. So, you know, some places that would hold forums would be very open to to non D or R candidates. Some wouldn't. So, like, what's sort of like the structural hurdles you're facing and how are you getting around those? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'll share a little bit about um the first campaign uh, real quick, just because it'll help you understand what I'm doing now. Uh, when I campaigned in 2019, I, I started running May 2019. The election was November. And the that, that shift, you know, to go from just doing agorism and journalism to running for office really came because I was going to city council. I was doing what we're supposed to do, calling my representatives on a local level, emailing, going to city council to talk shit to them and be ignored basically. And, and I was having these videos. I would take the videos from the city website. I would put them on the internet. And one of them got more than a million views of me just like, you know, t talking to them and them just being clueless, but that didn't lead to any change. Right. So then I tried doing the journalistic thing and going and confronting the mayor in public at different events and asking him, Hey, what do you think about this? What are you doing about this? It got to the point where when I would show up, his bodyguards would accost me and, you know, get between me and him or grab me or pull me out and all kinds of stupid things. And so my desire to run for mayor at first was kind of a joke of like, well, if I run for office, he can't run away from me. You know, yeah. he can't get away from me if we're on the same stage. And it was really a joke in that way. But then with talking with some friends and consulting with, you know, just local folks who I've worked with we felt like there was a good, you know, a good, some good movement behind us and we should do it. So I ran and I largely ran on taking away the power of the mayor's office. So um, to answer one of your questions, Texas has nonpartisan races, so you don't have to pledge to any party at all to be on the ballot, which is something that I personally appreciate um, not having to, to do that. Uh, but in the case of most of these politicians who have run for office, you can, you already know where they stand because they have a public record, but officially you don't have to put anything next to your name. So when I ran in 2019, though, I ran on this main platform of taking away the power of Houston's mayoral position. Uh, for anyone who understands local government, you have like strong and weak uh, mayoral forms of government typically, and there's variations to it, but Houston actually has the strongest form of strong mayor government in the entire United States. The only city, other city that's close to it is Denver, where the mayor gets to set like the budget for all the different di districts, which gives him, him or her a lot of power, but they also get to set the weekly agenda. So when the city council meets tomorrow, for example, there's a list of agenda items. And if you're calling in to talk about your concern about violence in your neighborhood, and that's not on the agenda, you get put at the end. So you're going to wait 
you're going to have to take off work or school on Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon and go wait three, four hours before you get to speak. By that point, the mayor's gone, half the council's gone, the rest of them aren't even paying any attention. I've been there, I've done that, seen that happen time and time again. And I kept realizing and hearing from city council members that they were basically, their hands were tied, that they had very limited power uh, for different issues. I mean, we would go there for police violence, for water quality issues, for all kinds of stuff. And we would get council members like, we're with you, we hear you, we stand with you. I can't do anything because they literally have no power to introduce like an agenda item to discuss. Hey, our people want this thing or that thing. The mayor has that power. So if you it, it just kind of incentivizes that entrenched corruption where you got to get good with the mayor. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your kind of thing, because if the mayor says, no, you're not getting anything done for your district budget wise, you're not getting anything on the agenda. And it's been a huge roadblock. So I was campaigning in 2019 on amending the city charter to take away the power of the mayor, or I think a more correct way probably would be to decentralize the power, right? To make it so that city council, these 16 council members actually have the power. And so thus the people of Houston would know when I call or email my representative, they can actually do something about it instead of saying, hey, sorry, I'm with you, but my hands are tied. The mayor won't let us do this. And um, so I was talking about this in 2019 and people were loving it. I mean, it got to the point where the other candidates started to say it as well. Like, we do need to take away the power of the mayor. And uh, it actually became an issue. I didn't win the race in 2019, but in 2020, a coalition of activist groups came together. They got more than 40,000 petition signatures for this uh, charter amendment. And now this November, in addition to voting for the next mayor and city council, people can vote to change the city charter to take away that power of the mayor and to give it back I'm, to city council. I am sorry to cut you off, but I have to cut you off. That is like, holy shit, uh, important. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you, you ran some, and the reason I'm saying that, to boil that down, you ran some long shot effort that you, uh, that you thought was a joke. Um, took it seriously, put your heart into it, and, beca and because you had enough uh, gas behind you, because you're connected with your community, that was able to be parlayed to something that in the real world took the fangs or, or well, could take the fangs away from the mayor who has all this pressure. The mayor of the fourth largest city in the U.S. I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. I feel like it's probably one of the most potentially libertarian things to happen uh, in a while, and I'm not looking for you know, any recognition on it, but I'm just excited for the potential that this could lead to real change here in the city that, I'm, you know, that I'm born and raised. And obviously this still, that, that alone, again, as I mentioned earlier, wouldn't make the Houston automatically a better place. It still would mean people would have to get involved. Right. But this would mean maybe all those people who gave up because this is the other thing I didn't mention that Houston is a city of three or 4 million people depending on, you know, the numbers you check the whole kind of greater Houston area. There's 200,000 registered voters that vote in these mayoral elections. So two, like, and that's, and one person never gets 200,000 votes. One person, there's typically always a runoff, so nobody gets more than 50%. So at best, a mayoral candidate gets 90 to 100,000 votes themselves. So 90 to 100,000 people tend to vote for the mayor of the fourth largest city in the United States, who's making all these international deals and agreements with, you know, big oil companies down here and who has this dictatorial power. And it's been a huge roadblock for a long time. And so I think the campaign was a success in that way and at least getting it into the conversation. I wasn't directly involved with the coalition. I know a lot of people who were a part of it, though, but I don't think it would have been. There was nobody locally talking about the power of the mayor before I campaigned on that in 2019. And then it has now become an issue. Now, this time in 2023, we're at the forums, as I was a couple of weeks ago at the LGBTQ Pride Forum, sitting next to the 
top two candidates, these 30-year career politician to my right and 30-year career politician to my left, sitting on the stage with them, and now they're asking us, what do you think about this idea of taking away the power of the mayor? Like, it's become a topic now that's a part of the mayoral race. And of course, the other candidates, they all, this is a problem. You know, we do need to think about this, but this is why you need to elect me because I'll use it right. You know, none of them are calling for taking away the power and they're definitely not promoting this. And I actually just called the city today and I found out that it's going to be called Proposition A and it will be listed on there. So now we're going to, you know, part of my campaign is really just trying to help that make it like, hey, whether you like me or not, go vote for that because that will help everybody is kind of the approach we've been. Yeah. Wow. Um, Aaron, I know you got something to say, uh, but. All, all, I wanted to ask you one question because it's crazy because we we've talked so much about this in theory. You know what I mean? Like it's it, so it's really wild to hear your story because, um, you know, I, I we have like legislation that we give the candidates and stuff like that. And we we've said, like, you know, run with this and maybe it could be something down the line. I'm just curious, though, because I think sometimes people struggle with well, who am I and what can I do? And, you know, that kind of pervades the motivation or lack thereof to like go do it. If if Derek Bros of today would have went back to Derek Bros pre running in 2019 and said, dude, like the race is going to go this way. And then, you know, very likely as a result of that, cause this conversation and this ballot initiative, you know, like, would you have believed that? Probably not. I mean, uh, so uh, taking myself back to that time, I already knew that I, I was going to move from Houston Um I moved to Mexico in, in early 2020 and I moved back just for this race. But I, so I knew I was leaving Houston and I kind of just saw it as like, all right, I'm going to try to help my city one more time. I'm going to go run for office and see what the heck we can do. But it was also like, no, there's no way this will ever happen. We definitely built a movement and there was a few times where it was like, holy shit, we might actually, you know, get somewhere. But this time there's even more momentum. I mean, I'm excited to tell you guys about what's been happening in this race because that was really, and I really thought, and I said, I would only do it one time. I had no plans to come back and do it again. But again, just sort of the last three or four years, I've continued doing my work in the agorist fashion and speaking publicly and writing books and doing all that. But I felt like I know I can speak uh, intelligently and communicate these ideas to a broad range of people having traveled around the United States and around Mexico and done tours and stuff. I know how to communicate. You know, you can put me in a room full of Democrats, Republicans, which is what we've been doing. And we're coming away with people taking yard signs, taking shirts. Like I know how to communicate these ideas and I'm just trying to use that skill or whatever you want to call it to the best ability I can in the the city that I am. And so I didn't think it would get to this point. No, I definitely didn't think we would be to the point where like, holy shit, we might actually limit the power of the mayor in this really big way. And again, if people get involved, that could lead to real change. So in terms of kind of the political landscape, is is Houston competitive as far as Democrat Republican or is it just Democrats like who could possibly who is likely to become uh, mayor usually in a in a normal election? Oh, it's definitely like the stereotypical blue in the cities and, you know, red, more rural areas. So Houston, uh, the current mayor, previous mayors and the two projected main candidates are uh, part of the Democratic Party. So I wasn't sure because it's uh, it's both a big city by population, but also by by area. Right. Yeah. To a lot of other cities. So sometimes those things like if they're bigger like that, they have more of the suburbs in there. And so sometimes. there's some of that, but honestly, a lot of, I, I'll tell you, like, we, we definitely, I meet a lot of people in the Houston area who do support me, but they're like, oh, I'm right. I'm outside the, 
the yeah. city lines because they're more in the suburbs area. And I just to you know really answer your question because I think I touched on it a little bit. But the strategy we're approach we're taking is kind of what you're talking about. There is like we're going for the areas of town that are like I can see we've got the the voting patterns for the 2020 election right, and we can see the areas that voted more Republican or conservative. That's not really obviously what we're going for per se. But in this race, one of the tactics is to show people, hey, if you don't like these far left Democrats who are tied to the Biden agenda, build back better, et cetera. Well, I'm an alternative. There's only one other person that's in the race currently that's promoting himself as like the only conservative candidate. He's a former council member. He doesn't have much support, doesn't really have any kind of a movement behind him. I am the youngest person in the race. So like people see me, I think as like, okay, I have a brain on my, you know, in my head, I can communicate. I'm younger. They see people showing up. And so for people, I think who are either like we've been getting support from the local libertarians. The Harris County Libertarian Party just endorsed me in the last couple of days. I'm getting support from this group called the Rise Coalition, which is like left-leaning social justice progressives, but they're all about limiting police powers in terms of surveillance. And that's something that I've cared about for years, right? So finding support, I recently got support from the Texas Latino conservatives as well. So we're really like coming, coming into every room and bringing away supporters. Um, so we're trying to do that, like just present myself as an alternative to anybody who doesn't, whether left, disaffected liberals, whatever, who don't align with these politicians who between the two of them have been there for 60 years. As, far, you... as, as far as one more uh, on Proposition A, like who um, you said it's getting on the ballot. So like if it's on the ballot, the people who don't want to change are going to come out against it. So like are there battle lines and people coming out? Uh, and not just saying uh, whether they support it or not, but like starting to organize on either side. And if so, like who's who's on either side of that? That hasn't become clear yet. Like literally just today I, I, or this weekend. Um, well, for one, I should say this. that So that happened in 2020, right? They got the signatures. They presented to the city. Then the city waited like a full year to certify them. So they've been dragging their feet because, again, the current mayor who's on his way out, he didn't want anything to do with this. He, he wants to make sure that he can have that full power where he's in office. So even though they did everything, the law, they got double the signatures required by the law, turned it in on time. The city dragged its feet. They certified it last year, but instead of having it on the previous uh, election, he kicked it off till this one because he's basically out of power. So it's been a lot of you know BS feet dragging by the city, but there hasn't been any, uh, and the city just announced this week that, okay, we're adding this charter amendment to the ballot, but there was no name. I called today. I learned it's called Proposition A. So literally tomorrow I'm going to be sending out emails and letting our campaign people know, or when I mention it at the forums and stuff, I've been mentioning this, that this is coming, but I didn't have a name for it. Now we have a name. And so far, I think the strategy, though, has just been to not talk about it, to keep people totally unaware that this thing is even happening. But again, part of my campaign is for my own vision and ideas, but at the least trying to say, look, whatever your politics, vote for that thing, because changing that, again, could help people across the board actually at least be heard in a realistic fashion instead of just being completely ignored, which is what's been going on for decades. Yeah, you could vote for that without having to vote for you. And if people are oh, it's a wasted vote or whatever. They could still vote for that and then vote for the the, defen the defensive candidate of their choice or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea. Um, you, you had mentioned that this coalition that you're working with is uh, focused on like surveillance state stuff. Do you have legislation for that to deal with that? You muted. Can you hear me now? Sorry. Not myself specifically, but this coalition is made up of like several different... Um, like the Texas Civil Rights Projects that are basically lawyers who are fighting this. And so they're, they're kind of building like a community campaign. What they're doing right now, since the elections are going on, 
it, they, they put out three demands that they're asking like, hey, hold the candidate's feet to the fire. And these are things that I've been talking about for years, like police surveillance tools and stuff. I can give them, I can give you and them some teeth for that. Um, the, the 10th Amendment Center um, has legislation, sample legislation that has passed in some areas already um, for this. So what it would do is it would ban the warrantless use of plate readers, stingray technology, all types of surveillance, like red light cameras, um, all of that does kind it cover of stuff. Shot spotter? What's that? I said, does it cover shot spotter? Are you familiar with shot spotter? This like the shot of the I've I've been reporting on stingrays for years here in Houston, but right now there's this big local issue. Shot spotters, these gunshot detectors, they put these microphones on street lights and other infrastructure, oh. and they claim, oh, it runs through the algorithm and it can detect gunshots and it's going to reduce crime. But they're putting them. They've tried to. They've got it in two different areas of Houston right now, and it's in like poor kind of black neighborhoods right now that they're testing them out. And uh, last two weeks ago, there was an investigation that came out by the Houston Chronicle confirming what myself and other people have been saying that it doesn't work. They show that it has like less than a 20% success rate. And by success, it just means the cops showed up and found something, but none of it was like, you know, arresting people for murder or violent crime or anything. And as we're learning through uh, the Rise Coalition, they're actually finding out that, of course, if you think about this, when this alert goes off, it alerts it doesn't give police an exact location. It just says like 0.5 mile radius, this area, right? So what do you think cops are going to do but show up and if they see anybody walking around that area it kind of gives them free range just hey like yeah is that you let me search you. Let me go after you exactly and so it's 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 a huge problem and so they're calling on people to uh, the city council approved a three and a half million dollar contract for it a couple years ago so they want to end the contract which is what i've been saying for years now and they're also calling on freezing the hpd budget which to me it's like that makes sense it's not saying defund the police it's saying let them prove their budget like any of us would have to because right now, Houston, they just passed the biggest budget in Houston's history ever. It just passed a billion dollars. And the cops got the cops have more than 60 percent of that budget. Um, so it's God just, damn. you know, but but every politician's afraid to say anything negative that's perceived as negative because the police union will come after you if you say anything other than give the cops more money. And uh, it's just it's stupid. So, I mean, I'm in support of like freezing the budget until we can prove that the tools they're using actually are effective or that the people want that. I mean, my whole campaign is not trying to say, hey, I'm going to come in and be the mayor and be the dictator and make all the right decisions. It's more about how can I decentralize that powers we're talking about? And then like, I want to do an audit of the police department and look at all the different surveillance tools that they have. We know HPDS, stingrays, drones, shot spot, or another thing. And ideally you would put that stuff on uh, on the ballot in terms of like resolutions that let the people vote specifically. Do you want these things? Uh, do you want to fund these things instead of it just sort of being a blanket thing where city council goes and approves these uh, surveillance tools that aren't just like little budget items like we're going to build a new bathroom at the police station, but things that affect the people of Houston that they have no say in and really have no idea it's even going on my in a perfect world, it would be maybe let's put that on the next ballot and then you have a year-long campaign of educating people about these things hold community uh, meetings all over the city educating people about the dangers and then let them decide right and i think that is you know without being becoming like i'm going to be the liberty dictator you got to let people make their own decisions right uh to, to answer your question i don't know that that one is in there specifically but it should be pretty easy to add a subsection to it um it's not a huge long piece of legislation and yeah, it's kind of like yeah I'll, I'll send you the link um, and, uh, yeah, kind of what you're getting at there is like how, like the, the ripples into waves effect of things that I think people don't necessarily 
account for in, in what's possible if they just go out there and do the thing. Like another example of this um, is we, the, the Mises caucus in Colorado had gotten involved in the effort to uh, decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms in Denver in 2019, I think that was. Um, And, uh, and it just, just barely passed by the skin of its teeth. And that was a ballot initiative effort. Um, And fast forward to last year, the same guy who I'm friends with, and, and we helped with the Denver thing, who became a more of a libertarian through our friendship, led the effort that friggin did about initiative and, and decriminalized psychedelics, not just shrooms, psychedelics across the entire state of Colorado because of the, the precedent and the conversation that was set uh, with, with uh, Denver being kind of a cultural hub of the whole state. Um, so yeah, man, even just getting it on there awesome. or just putting it out there, it sets things in motion that you just can't account for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I didn't even mention this best thing yet. I'm happy to take any more questions, but I, two weeks ago, we showed up in one of the most recent polls, actually, which is a big move as well. So, I mean, we, uh, the, the University of Houston, they have a political science department that does all the polling, the major polls, which I don't know how much we can trust them, but these are the polls that typically are used to decide which candidates are going to be allowed into the final two televised debates, which are, you know, prime time, two weeks before the election kind of thing. And uh, again, they're, they're saying it's a two-person race between Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmire, Texas state senator and Texas rep, um, who have been there for 30 years. And so they're just, as the media did in 2019, I learned this again firsthand, they, they, they really do a great job of crafting a narrative. So there's 12 people running in the race right now who have filled out the paperwork and done everything. But for months, they've been saying, here are the five candidates running for office. Here are the five candidates running for office. It's a two-person race. And the local media just constantly uh, re- uh, repeats this. And Aaron, you were asking about like different groups sometimes having the forums. Most of them are very welcoming, but there are there have been some that are very resistant to somebody like myself who doesn't either fit their whatever narrative or their mold of um, what you know what they want or i'm too out there or whatever or they're like you're not a serious candidate or they try to create barriers which they're private organizations they can do what they want but they'll base on like money like you must have raised over two hundred thousand dollars or you must have whatever things they can but i would say 80 to 90 percent of them i do get invited to and that's just because i'm constantly hustling like i'm tracking them down i'm emailing them i'm calling them like hey i'm a candidate i'm i saw you're doing a forum i'm gonna come show up and then you know they welcome me there's only a few that are like oh we're only inviting some candidates but again even though they have that that right as a private organization i think that is another important way that this narrative gets crafted you have the media telling people there's only five candidates and then you have local groups which is where people who want to get involved in politics go to find out about the candidates and those groups sometimes might not really give a real representation of who's running. They pick like just a few of the main candidates and then they exclude a whole chunk of people. So it, yeah. it does happen. And last in 2019, I had I got on most of the TV stations, but I definitely had this guy at the local Fox station bring me to the station, sit me down for 30 minutes, interview me and then BS me for two weeks telling me they couldn't find an editor to edit the interview. Mm-hmm. I had to call a station manager and then I had to confront him in public and he eventually said, you're not a serious candidate. You're not viable. We're not running the interview. And I said, thanks for being real, at least. Like, at least you finally took off your mask. You know, so I definitely had to deal with BS like that. And I just kind of, the way I see it is like, this also allows me as a candidate to show people that this stuff does happen, right? Just to use my platform and my voice to document this and show people like, look, I'm doing what they're saying we're supposed to do. I'm running for office or whatever. And this is how they're treating me. Yeah, I've seen that in Ohio when I was involved with the LP there and a candidate uh, at one point there, a 
I've got stories about John Kasich and the media and stuff in Ohio, but like that's literally they're admitting to you, and I've seen it happen and heard it to my face as well. Of like, yes, we are gatekeeping. You are not a serious candidate. So I mean, right there, it's like any pretense of like I'm a journalist covering things that are even just even if you're not a serious candidate it's still an interesting story if i'm a reporter and i want to like educate and inform and entertain my readers hey this uh guy with this weird political philosophy who's obviously not an idiot i'm gonna i'm gonna put him on you know and we'll talk about it but that's that is what we're up against yeah and, i didn't i don't think i made it clear though just sorry mike that i'm polling at seven percent in that poll is what i meant to get to is that i showed up at seven percent with likely voters in houston there's still 22 percent of people who are undecided just as of like three weeks ago when this came out so you know we're 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 still seeing a path here and we're trying seven percent and, and just for anybody who's listening seven percent in a major city like that is pretty wild um the, the, the closest corollary, and I, I wonder if these figures line up with Houston, the closest corollary is when I was helping Maj when he was running for Philly and um, for an at-large city council spot. And they were getting like a, over a million dollars for a city council seat uh, in, in big money. I imagine it's the same way in, in a city like that. This, this, these Houston races are like the top two candidates are over 60 million now, dude. It's crazy the amount of money they spend on these local. And which really, when you do the math, it's actually sad and hilarious because in 2019, we raised $15,000, a very humble and happy 15,000. We stretched it as far as we could. Probably going to do similar numbers this time. And if you look at the number of votes I got for the amount of money I raised, and then they're raising millions of dollars and they still can't get more than, you know, 100,000 people to come out. Like, it's pretty sad the amount of money those votes actually are costing them. Yep. Now they are, they're trying to keep you off the ballot, right? Yeah. So that's, this is where things are now, man. So I've been campaigning since January. I, I, when I first came back to Texas and I was really deciding on this, I had a sort of exploratory meeting with some friends and community members and we sat down, I went over, here's what we did in 2019. Here's what we can do this time. Here's my ideas. Here's the vision. And everybody was very much like agreed, like, let's do this. And I laid out all the obstacles and I, I knew ahead of time that this was one of the obstacles that my felony, I went to prison in 2005 when I was 20 years old. And, uh, you know, it, it's 18 years ago now, 13 years since I've been off parole, obviously it was like a totally different part of my life. But, and, and typically in the life I live as an entrepreneur, it never affects me as an independent journalist. Like this doesn't come up, but trying to play games with the state, with the matrix, these things come up. And Texas is a very great legal gray area where nobody really seems to know if felons can even run for office. When I ran in 2019, I ran very openly saying, Hey, I'm a felon. I've turned my life around. I want to take money away from the cops and, you know, do different things. I, I ran very openly about it. Nobody made a big deal about it. But what happened also in 2019 is that one of the city council members, I didn't win my race, but she got into the runoff and there ended up being a lawsuit. The third party, per the third place person sued the city saying, hey, she's a felon. She shouldn't be allowed on the ballot. It turned into this year long legal battle and that they have eventually let her stay on the ballot. But, you know, the long story short is that the law in Texas, the election code is very unclear. It says felons must be pardoned or relieved of all resulting disabilities and nobody knows what the hell that means and so <laughs> they for a reason <laughs> yeah you know so they they left it that way and so she was allowed to stay on the ballot there's an, another similar thing happened in austin there's there's some precedents for felons being on the ballot including myself but post that 
um, uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton here in Texas, he released a legal opinion, not a law, but just a legal opinion where he said he doesn't think felons that we get our rights back, you know, even though you get the right to vote back. They're basically saying the only way you can do this is a pardon. Texas has an extremely low of successful pardons, like maybe a couple hundred people the Board of Pardons and Paroles recommends, and then the governor does 5% of those uh, you know, per year. Abbott has like the lowest in all of Texas history for approving this. So there's basically no remedy. There's a, a, there's a, there's a judicial clemency route that I'm trying to take, but the long and short of it is they, when I applied to be on the ballot this year, I went on day one, we did our thing, they accepted it, but right away I knew something wasn't right, and then two days later I got a rejection letter from the city, from the mayor's office. The city attorney is, try, is using the attorney general's legal opinion from 2019 saying, oh, according to this, you don't have your rights back, so they rejected my ballot, and the deadline is August 21st at 5 p.m., so the last week and a half I've basically been on the phone with lawyers and legal rights organizations, groups that work on felons' rights and all that kind of stuff, and this is just, honestly, it's like, a, a, an area that there seems to be nobody working on, like specifically, there's people talking about how to get felons their voting rights back, how to get gun rights back and housing, but it doesn't seem like anybody's really thought about this. In some states, you never get your rights back to run for office, your rights back. In other places, you know, there's a process, but Texas just happens to be one of these places that are very restrictive. I still think there's a legal battle, but it's pretty much coming down to, I've got a couple of levers still left to pull, but it really comes down to the route that I have, it probably won't come quick enough. You know, we could sue them in federal court saying they're violating my constitutional rights, but the lawyer I've been consulting with who knows his, his stuff is saying, like, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen quick enough to get you on the ballot. So unless something happens within uh, two weeks here now, I will officially no longer be on the ballot, according to them. And my team, we already have a plan. If that does happen, that'll be the final two months of the race. Obviously, that would suck because I've been invited to a number of the forums, and I'm assuming if I'm not on the ballot past that date, they'll probably... Uh, you know, tell me I can't come anymore. We'll see. I still plan to show up. But if that does happen, worst case scenario, we're going to switch our resources and like our material won't so be so much about promoting me and my campaign, but more about like, hey, let's end shot spotter. Let's take away the power of the mayor. Vote yes on Proposition A. Like use the energy and the momentum and the little bit of money we have for those final two months to just like kind of campaign on these ideas. So one way or the other, I'm trying to affect this race. And I think, you know, this is just another way that the state fucking disenfranchises people. Like I said, this is 18 years ago. This is very far away from my regular life. And, you know, here it is. Have you, you could be a gangbanger, man. <laughs> have, have, what if you get the community, like, activated around this, though? Because I would assume that most people probably see that it makes you, you know, you have a past. Like, most people have a past. And it makes you more authentic and real, like a real human. So, I think so. Uh, if, if you... I think if other people kind of get activated about it and are like, hey, this is messed up, maybe it will make them. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, they're definitely like, so for example, I was at the RISE meeting that I mentioned earlier and speaking to a group of people who are working on these issues. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm getting a lot of support from you guys. And unfortunately, I have to let you know that this is what's going on. They're trying to keep me from getting on the ballot. There's definitely a lot of people who are upset about it. I actually, this is how like I'm trying, like how many levers I'm trying to pull and try anything. This morning, because again, I follow the city as a journalist. I get the press releases. I get the mayor's schedule. It's also helped me know when to go confront him on certain topics. So I went to a, a, an unveiling of some kind that he was at this morning and walked right up to him. I was like, hey, how are you doing? It's been a little while. You know, shook his hand. I was like, hey, I'm not here to question you or anything. I'm just here off the record. And I just said like, you know, can we get a meeting or a phone call like to talk about my ballot application? And he said he had no idea about it. He said that's the city attorney, the legal department would have handled that. So, you know, 
He could just be passing, you know, the buck down, but I did email the city attorney immediately. I called them and be calling them tomorrow. Like I'm trying everything I can. I also do have a number of the candidates in the race who are polling higher than me, who are very supportive of me and even like ex city council candidates. And so I'm kind of playing with this idea of trying to get as quickly together a letter of local people of influence signing on and getting, sending it to the city and trying to publicize saying, Hey, like we think he should be, he has the right to run. He ran in 2019, the world didn't end. And I think the city's just worried that somebody might sue if I was to get in the runoff or potentially win. But for me, it's just like, it's important for me to be on every debate stage as possible, you know? And the good thing is before the 21st, there's a lot of events coming up. I'm speaking on a, I'll be on the stage with those same politicians again next week at this uh, big uh, forum here that's gonna be streamed and across the city and do another, you know, last week we were speaking to libertarians, Democrats, Republicans, the LGBTQ pride forum. Like we're, we're definitely getting out there. It'll just be disappointing to not be able to take it, you know, all the way to the end, actually being in the race with the goal of being in those televised debates. So I'm trying everything I can if anybody's got ideas. Well, I, I, I remember the video when Henry Kissinger rolled into town and how you confronted him. So I know you'll have no problem asking these other politicians, what do you think? Do you think I should be on the ballot with, with this, you know, this legal like this uh, legal precedent and all mm -hmm. that? Um, and uh, I mean, is there any pathway there for like between the fact that you were openly a felon when you ran before and no action was taken and the fact that this other lady was restored to the ballot being a felon? Um I think uh, there's to, to basically push uh, uh, discrimination from the city. I think that there would be a case. It's all it really comes down to, like the lawyer I've been speaking with, and if more than a few lawyers say we have a case, again, it's just I'm not sure I can get you in the court and get a judge to say, hey, he should be able to stay on the ballot while we figure this out in time for that 21st deadline. Is kind of the big thing. They would need. Robert? They would need like an injunction or something. Basically, yeah. And so, I mean, like I said, I, I've gone, I, you know, I'm pretty good at researching and stuff. So when this attorney might, told me, you know, I might Robert have done Barnes. It. Yeah. Robert Barnes. I'm familiar, but not connected. Yeah. Let me see if I can get you to. Yeah, he he, he yeah. talks a lot about helping independent and third party, you know, yeah. challenger parties get on. So he's actually another one of these. He's, he is a lawyer, um, but he's also a podcaster. Uh, yeah. with Viva Frey, Viva and Barnes. Uh, and they got a pretty popular podcast and he does a lot of legal commentary and, and all of that. And I forget the name of the organization, but I can reach out. But Natalie, who used to be at the Mises Institute, um, she's working for an organization now that's like uh, like another version of the... Um, why am I forgetting the name of it? They, they, they Civil rights cases. They deal with civil right. rights cases. ACLU. <laughs> like, is it like Thank the you. Institute yeah, for Justice yeah. or... Something yes. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. In, in regards to activating the community, I was going to say, um, do you do you, you probably run ads, right? Like um, like social media or whatever, yeah. like any ads, like yeah. if you did an ad, like they're trying to keep me off the ballot, help like activate people in that way. I work in marketing, so that's like where I lean. Yeah, <laughs> these... for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, well, I gave you the link to the, it's called the fourth amendment protection act, uh, in the, in the chat. I got it. Nice. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's something you just add that. What's it called? Shot caller or some shit. Uh, you, shot, you just add, shot yeah, there you go. Um, uh, just add that to it and that should be pretty good to go. And it's passed in other areas before. So, um, awesome. Damn. Man. Why, 
appreciate you guys giving me a chance to share, you know, about what, what I'm up to, what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, if anybody hearing this is based in Texas or Houston, we could use all the support. Uh, we're, we're definitely, it's been really cool, man, to just see like going to these events and going there and just being real about these ideas about taking away the power of the mayor and trying to give people more of a voice and people are resonating across the board. That's what I was saying. Like, I don't think things are as divisive everywhere in real life as the algorithm might make it seem to us, you know, because I'm going to democratic events where just, for example, the other night where a woman who's at a democratic event is like, I voted for you last time. I supported you because you know what, both these parties, they're just full of it. And you're, you're not part of that. Like people, people do see that I think more than we give them credit for. And, uh, it's been an interesting learning experience just going out here trying to stand up in the community and be about something and especially being able to sit next to these people that, you know, we, I think we build up politicians sometimes and these figures in our minds often and they become like kind of so otherworldly, like they're so big and bad. But when you're sitting next to one of these people and just talking to them or being able to confront them face to face, like I was able to the first forum, you realize that, I mean, they're just regular people, right? But they're used to being in a position where they're around a bunch of yes people who only repeat what they want and where they're not typically questioned or challenged. And so once you take them out of that container and they're at just like a local town hall meeting where there's people asking questions, you really see that they're just, they're just not, there's not really anything to be afraid of in terms, they're just regular people who are just weaselly and using the power that they can to get what they want, you know. Another class of people like that is journalists, and that was actually the next question I was going to ask about uh, being an independent journalist. You know, what's your business model? How's it working? How, and how, what do you see um, in your interactions with, uh, do, you, do, do uh, journalists at TV stations and newspapers leave the office anymore these days? It's been about 10 years since I've been in the game, but like, are you at press, you know, are you rubbing shoulders with these guys? And, and what are you seeing as far as the, the uh, so-called, uh, you know, whatever the, I hate the term mainstream media, but that's what it is. So talk about the contrast yeah. there. Sure. So, I mean, again, I didn't go to school for journalism. I just picked it up through my activism and then over time started taking journalism courses just because I like to, you know, pad my knowledge however I can. And uh, when I first started going to, city hall and going to hpd to go to the press conferences which they don't even host anymore they actually just yeah. totally shut down that so you can't even go there and ask ask questions but when i showed up there it would be some of the local media and they'd have their big fancy cameras and i'd be there at the time with like a little handheld camera everybody's all fancy and i'd feel totally out of place but i would be the only one asking any kind of hard question and it was like those kind of experiences seeing firsthand how all these local journalists working for the various you know big big corporations they know the mayor personally they go out to dinner with him on the weekends or they want to be invited to the galas and the fancy dinners and this and that so they just throw softballs all day they never ask a hard question they never ask anything challenging and then when i'm the person there with like you know my little handheld equipment asking that hard question everybody in the room looks at me like i just shit my pants <laughs> or something they're like oh who let this guy in like and so there's that was my experience like on a local level dealing with the journalists and again eventually the hpd actually not to get sidetracked but funny story the first time i went there and i did that i basically got asked to stay after class is kind of what it felt like the hpd liaison officer who's basically the chief's bulldog said hey derek will you hang out afterwards and he said you know you're welcome here we're glad to have you in here as long as you're a respectable journalist and you're a credible journalist and you know was kind of hinting at different things to me and 
tried to get me to change one of my reports because I challenged the police chief actually about stingrays and he lied to me when I had the contract. So I posted a video saying HPD chief lies. And he said, technically he didn't lie. That was a non-confirmer denial. And so he was like, so just you know, maybe you want to change your title. I'm like, look, you know, we can be friends and human beings and shake hands and stuff, but I'm here to do my job and you're doing your job, but I'm not going to change the title. So my point with all this is I had a lot of experiences running into them. There, I see some of the corporate media at local events, like there's issues going on. They're showing up at some stuff, but for the most part, no, they're not in the streets, man. And they're, and my motto is basically as I'm just, I'm a one person team. I have, you know, help in different areas when it comes to graphics. I don't really do that myself, but I, I write my own documentary scripts. I work with other editors to bring those to life. I, I write my content or produce articles. I get paid through writing for The Last American Vagabond and The Conscious Resistance is you know, bringing in small support. But mainly it's just really a love of truth and investigation and trying to you know, see what's out there and what I can share with the world as I learn. It's amazing. I had a, a story somewhat similar I was when I was kind of new. It was kind of a, you know, a, a, not a huge paper, but not a small one either and a uh, suburban. And uh, I was at a, like a police standoff, right. Where they're surrounding the house. It turns out it was a guy, it was a guy from the local air force base who got drunk and went to his wife's house and was just whatever. So they, you know, they surrounded the house. They get the SWAT team out for one guy with supposedly a shotgun and, I, and when they finally get him out of the house, they shoot him with the rubber bullets and rough him up and throw him in the truck. And, you know, so I wrote on the um, and I was like literally right there. So I wrote exactly what I saw that, you know, the the physical stuff that they had done. Well, he told he tells everybody else that he was taken peacefully, you know, that nothing happened and all the other, you know, the TV and the and the the big city paper ran it that way. The next time I saw him, he was like, Hey, why did you write that? And I'm like, Gene, because I was there, I saw it. And that's what happened. And he didn't like that at all. And it, but it was amazing to see the, like the look of perplexity in his face that I was not going to, that I was not going to do it the way everybody else did it. It was, it was bizarre. So. Well, Derek, you are the real deal, man, and uh, I certainly support you. I know the Mises Caucus in Texas is, is going to support you. Uh, they are supporting you, um, and you know, glad to uh, to have this conversation with you. Like I said, know, known you a long time, and I'm really really proud of you. The uh, all the work you've done and and what you've got going on here, man, and that's some major waves that you could you could affect in a, in a big city where everyone says it's it's hopeless and and all of that shit, man. So, uh, yeah. really appreciate all your work. Yeah, thank you. And I don't know. I don't know if we, I was gonna say I don't know if we mentioned my website for the campaign. It's just my name, yeah. DerekBrooks.com. If you want to check that out, anybody can go there. We have a, a really, really beautiful site put together. It breaks down the issues really simply. We've got videos for everything that I'm focused on, including taking away the power of the mayor. DerekBrooks.com/slash/donate if you want to give. Um, it's all going towards this campaign, obviously. And if I do manage to stay on the ballot, then it's going to go towards getting billboards and you know all those kind of fun things and putting. We're just trying to reach as many people as possible in these next two and a half months here. So I appreciate all the support I can get. If there are people who are not local to you, but who want to help with something other than money, is there anything like phone banking or text banking that they can help with remotely? Absolutely. That is, that is something that will be uh, starting very soon with the support of the Texas Mises Caucus as well. So yeah, definitely. If people want to help remotely, feel free. We have a contact form on the website as well. You can just reach out that way and I'll get those emails. And if you want to help in any way, wherever you're from, I'm happy to take it. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Good to meet you well, guys. Appreciate you. you as well. Thank you. And then to wrap, well, what were you going to say, Aaron? No, I was just going to say. Uh, I saw your lips moving. What were you going to say? Well, the Prop A thing is genius. And uh, I think we need to see if our state organizers can identify other cities where that's a thing um, and maybe start to do that in other places. But, uh, uh, but yeah. I, a map I think of this. Like a, we would need a map of like the strong model um, mayors yeah. that he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a, already a resource and we'll, we could talk about it later, but stuff like that, that does kind of, there's not a, even though we do like, like the guns and drugs legalization and stuff like that, that has some like ideological baggage, but like something like this is like, man, it's nice and clean. You know, nobody can it really be against it. Across the spectrum, for sure. Yeah. We hear people like, yeah, the mayor does have too much power. I didn't realize that. Yep. Yeah, yeah that's it's awesome, great. Man. So, and it we, makes people you know, trust you because you're running for mayor and you're like, the mayor has too much power. <laughs> like, people are like, yeah, the mayor, the guy running for mayor thinks the mayor has too much power based. It, like, it, it's just such a base take. <laughs> it harkens back to like one of my favorite Ron Paul lines where he's like, I don't know how to run your life. I don't have the authority to run my life, your life. I don't have the power to run your life. You know what I mean? Like, and, and just that whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I like to tell people I can't speak for them. I can just amplify your concerns, you know, your voices. Cause yeah. Thanks guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. Uh, and this is the kind of candidates that we are trying to support with project decentralized revolution. So take humanaction.com, sign up for the newsletter, uh, join the Mises caucus, get involved. And, uh, Get into your city council meetings, get into your church groups, get become a local leader, get in there and make shit happen, man. You might not feel like you can, but give it a little time, gain a little trust. You have no idea what you are capable of. So thank you, everybody. Join us next week. We're going to have Bob Murphy coming on to talk about uh, uh, Austrian economics and basically what are the what are the most important indicators within the economy for uh, for an Austrian to be looking at. So we'll talk some stories. We'll talk about that. Join us next week for episode 122, takehumanaction.com. And thank you very much. Good night, guys. Bye-bye.